0: Hi everyone, I'm Madeline Park, stylist and vintage fashion hound. I believe everything has a story, whether it be clothes or the people that wear them. While I'm interested in the frontiers defining the future of fashion, it's necessary to acknowledge a certain responsibility to and respect for the landscape of our past. Season 9 aims to understand the context our clothing has to our climate, our culture and our country, and in a world where fashion moves fast, examine how we can move forward and find a sense of self back in nature. This series will continue to share stories of creative people with a strong sense of style, but with a grounded group of talented fashion professionals who share in their ability to work with nature, as well as nurture and nourish it. Today I'm chatting with Anna McLeod, Global Content and Communications Manager at The Walmart Company. Working with Wool may have been written in Anna's stars, but it's taken twists of travel and the turns of time to return her to a place that sits at the heart of her story. And while she may have left forward-focused frontiers and fast fashion behind her, she remains serious about style. Whether it be investing in the well-made, treasuring totems of her past or being passionate about her purpose on the planet, Anna is a marriage of the classic and the considerate and it's her style to simply lay this out in black and white. I hope you can sit back, relax and enjoy listening to Anna's story. Anna, Anna, I thank you so much for coming today. I've obviously asked you Style stories this season because, um, as a representative of Walmart, uh, it was really the, there was a critical alignment to the conversations we were having about the relationship between fashion and landscape um, for this season. But you also have obviously an inherent love of fashion and design in your life so bringing those things together makes you a very welcome guest uh for this season um but starting with uh the idea that uh as 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 australians we um are one of the biggest global producers of wool and in this way wool is inherently connected to a sense of australian um sense of self Let's kind of start with your Australian sense of self and can you just give me a bit of an insight into the landscape that you grew up in?
1: Sure, yeah. So I mean, it's funny, but the wool industry is kind of inherently in my background. And um, so my grandfather um, owned a wool growing property in outside Tambo, which is outside Charleville in Queensland, and that's where my mother and my uncle grew up for the first kind of 20 years of their life um so and then also now my cousin has still has a wool growing property out there as well mm. and then his father had one so there was like a about three there were three huge properties all kind of connected and that was sort of our families, um wool growing properties so um and did you interact with that?
0: Like, as, in Yes. Your, so like childhood that I was... I mean, not, like... as a,
1: not as a child, but as I got older. When So we started going out there and visiting it probably from when I was about like eight or nine years old. And we would go out, you know, twice a year for big camping trips with lots of friends and go out when they were shearing and go out when they were lambing or weaning or the, when there was something exciting happening. We'd mm-hmm. like stay in the shearers' quarters, which I remember being absolutely terrifying. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and... Like, I remember always like looking out into this like dark abyss at night and just being absolutely like terrified. Cause I was a city kid yeah. and like coming into the country like that, where you like, there's just miles and miles and miles of nothing. Yeah. It was like, I remember that feeling of being like, wow, this is really a huge country. And, you know, there's,
0: it's just so beautiful and stark and, scary awesome, and amazing isn't it? yeah Cause i me too i was a city kid and never i we weren't particularly campy as a, as a as a family but i think i would have that it's just that that feeling like that there's something so much bigger than you Yeah. right and it kind of can be wonderful but really intimidating at the same time exactly
1: um and luckily my mum's cousin's property has some um, Indigenous paintings and things on, on in these like in a series of caves there. So that's all been protected, and um, they've done a really great job of like bringing the indigenous community back there to okay. be able to understand it and like connect with it. Basically, I'm not super like sure on the exact details of how what they've done and how deeply they've gone. Yeah, but I remember going and like visiting those caves every time we would go.
0: And how what was that feeling like?
1: I mean, just that sense of like Australia is so ancient mm. and that this land isn't, it's not ours, you know? Yeah. Um, and really like, like strongly connecting to that feeling of like this. And that's what my uncle used to say. He's like, we're not, we're just stewards of this land. We're mm-hmm. not, we don't own it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's something that's true for like all wool growers of Australia, the ones I've met, because we meet a lot of them, because in my job, they're our key stay- stakeholders. They fund the Walmart company, yeah. the sixty thousand growers of Australia who pay the levy. So every single they're such passionate people, and they're so passionate about the land, and exactly that being a steward of the land, and that it's they know that it's going to be passed down. Mm-hmm. So they want to make sure that it's fertile and regenerative, and you know, um, able to be passed down to generations. Yeah. Um. They're just there to to upkeep it. Yeah. And in turn that means that they're so invested in the in the health and the happiness of their sheep and yeah it's just it makes me sad when you see like peter kind of focused initiatives where they're calling out like one bad video of shearing where like they've nicked a sheep or something but it's it's like they like paint the entire industry with that kind of brush that they don't look after their sheep because they do they care so deeply about them yeah um and they like spend their lives making sure that they're happy and healthy you know
0: yeah okay so just taking a step back then um obviously like there's this amazing kind of historical connection to wool and and you've had these kind of accents of um like rural life if you like in your like dotted through your childhood but describe to me what Otherwise, your childhood looked like as, as a city girl. Did you grow up in Brisbane? Yeah, grew up in Brisbane. Um, always
1: sort of had like a garden, a house, you know, a nice house with a garden and a pool. Um, we moved around a lot because mum and dad loved to like buy houses and then do them up and then move again. Um, but I remember like always being outside, mm-hmm. like always, always being outside. You know, the other day I was walking with my husband and I like, had this memory of, like, picking up one of those, like, big buds and then, like, shooting it, like, create making and turning it into gun. I was like, do you ever used to do that? Mm. And that just, like, came back to me. And it's, like, all those, like, connections to, like, the smell of, like, that particular plant or, like, doing this sort of thing as a child, like, peeling back, like, a camellia bud to see, like, what is at the very bottom of it, mm. like, stuff like that. And um, so, yeah, we we were lucky in that we got to sort of, Even though we lived in the city, we got to like hang out. We lived near near a race course as well. So we used to like go watch the racing, just at the fence, like peering over the fence. (laughs) Um, So yeah, and I lived sort of very much within like one suburb and all my friends lived there. So we'd walk to each other's houses. Like it was quite an idyllic childhood in that sense where we like bike ride to each other's house and um, like played in the school playground on the weekends and played on the school oval and stuff. So-
0: um, Freedom
1: a lot of freedom and like like not a huge amount of TV which is which was like the complete opposite to what I feel like kids are doing these days but um so yeah it was it was really it was really lovely went over to both my grandparents houses a lot my one grandmother was like very sort of proper and quite elegant and the other was quite bohemian. So it was like the mix of the two was quite a nice balance. Mm. Um, and kind of the, you know, the bohemian granny let us kind of do whatever we wanted. And then the elegant and sort of more strict granny. She was wonderful, but she did let us, she she was the one that sort of like taught me how to cook and um, taught me like what, what she'd say, she'd say that's common. Like right. lollies, eating lollies are, is common. Right. <laughs> Or wearing black is common, right? I'm like that hasn't that hasn't sunk in. <laughs> um, like she because I used to want a pair of black Mary Janes, and um, Gran wouldn't let me get any, right? Because she said black on children is not is not it's common. So,
0: <laughs> so building this picture, you've got this kind of very free, um, outdoorsy but suburban Australian mm-hmm. lifestyle with these kind of a couple of trips to the the country um, through the year. What what does that mean for you? I think that, yeah, that
1: sort of, that fostering of us, like, and letting us kind of not necessarily do what we want, but have that kind of broad lifestyle of between city and country Mm. made us appreciate what Australia is and then also like really want to live here you yeah. know even though i spent a lot of years overseas um cuz i think australia i think growing up in australia makes you love it but also makes you want to go away
0: mm.
1: and experience other places because it's such a australia is so intrinsically australian isn't it like mm. it, even though it is very multicultural um when you when you then go to other cities you really understand both the pros and cons of living in Australia. Yeah. So I think it def- that kind of childhood definitely sort of like set me up with like a confidence, but also a desire to kind of get out there and see the world as well.
0: Mm. I'm gonna get into your travel later. Um, did your parents I'm curious to know were they what kind of what kind of work did they do like did they did they do things that were I think well no not necessarily like dad was a dad is a
1: lawyer and still works yeah mum was really a housewife, but she also did a lot of um, a lot of volunteering so she volunteered with um, indigenous women who like single mothers right so she would go and like help them to sort of Develop their mothering skills, essentially. Right. Um, I forget what the name of it was called. God, she's going to kill me. <laughs> um, so she was like, she, you would get, you would get, um, you would support one woman, like one woman through like a couple of years, and yeah, then right. once they were ready to sort of go off, they would,
0: they would be. So it's almost like a mentorship. Yeah. Or... Yeah.
1: I forget what it's called, but such an I've never heard of anything like that now. No. Yeah, it was really interesting. Yeah. Um, and she all mum also um, volunteered at like martyr Mothers, I think it was, where you basically just nurse babies
0: <laughs> and help new mums. So obviously very maternal, but also instilling a strong kind of sense of community ethic in you guys. Yeah,
1: definitely. And work ethic as well. Mum and dad are both really hard workers. So we all, the three of us, my brother and sister, I'm the middle child, have a really strong work ethic, yeah, um, and obviously, and also just their ability to like the way that they would dedicate themselves to like DIYing their their house renovations all themselves, yeah, was quite yeah. Um,
0: Impressive. Did you ever, you, you said before you were imaginative, did you ever kind of do your own DIY kind of crafty projects as a I mean, kid? I I wish. I was not that, I am not like a three-dimensional person. I'm more like
1: words and like plays and like pretend. Right. So like putting on plays was a constant thing and just constantly pretending to be something, somebody else. Why do you think that was something that? Um, a really good question I'm not sure it's just always been I'm quite like an outgoing personality and like have always been like an extrovert mm. and so I just I just was like I want to be an actor
0: I would like to go to <laughs> theatre. is it given that extroversion is it, do you think it's like the the sense of imagination and putting on the plays and the storytelling what have you is a way of just getting the inward out yeah absolutely yeah. yes that would absolutely 100% be it. Yeah.
1: Um <laughs> oh. but yeah, it's so funny cuz my brother is my brother's sister are quite intro, quite introverted. Yeah. So I was the loud. But I think that's also like the
0: middle child. Middle things. child finding your role. Yeah, absolutely. So how did all of that then play into your sense of fashion cuz you obviously your grandmother's already seem to have had a, a bit of a an influence in, in different ways on you, but tell me about this imaginative, outdoorsy kid, middle child, and how they started to kind of absorb fashion.
1: I think my first like memory of like fashion and style is like dressing up in my granny's clothes. She used to have these amazing the bohemian one or no, the, the, the elegant one because yeah. she was quite like a. I mean, if you could call it, call it if there is such a term, a Brisbane socialite. <laughs> <laughs> like she was always in the papers at the parties, and you know. Um, There's just so many. They've still got the newspaper clippings of her because she's quite beautiful as well. Right. Um, Because they, because Granny like grew grew up in Brisbane but then met Mac and they moved out there. Right. I'm pretty sure. Because he came from like a wool growing um, family but she didn't. She was like a city girl. Okay. Um, So, yes, dressing up in all of her clothes because she kept them all. And the one piece I remember was like this like black long dress with this sort of embellished beaded collar that kind of came down all the way like that and a mohair hat. That's like probably one of my first memories is sort of like the glamour
0: of that sort of Have you ever tried to recreate that look subconsciously? (laughs) Yeah.
1: Um, At my brother's wedding I wore this Philip Lim kind of beaded, it had this like sort of diamante kind of and sort of I think what was it like blue sort of jamming crusted collar um so I kind of did do that yeah yeah it happens I, yeah
0: yeah <laughs> it does Doesn't. and it? I I found myself i going oh yeah okay that's why I've I've always liked that type of dress because yes. it's this one photo it's that's one just thing. this image in my mind that I didn't I didn't really know was there but now yeah. now I've made that connection. And then for my formal, for my year twelve formal, yeah.
1: I um my mum had this black dress that she used to wear to balls that I then got kind of altered into like an asymmetrical just like um dress and it had like a split up the front and I would wear that now. Yeah. And I still have it. Yeah. Um so there was this very there that I always had this like sense of you've got to keep things that you love to pass down mm. um, because Gran and both Mum and Gran have done that with their, like, most, like, loved items.
0: And do you feel like that they, they are the sites
1: of your fashion education growing For up? For sure, yeah. Yeah, definitely, Mum and Gran are. Because Mum would always be really into, like, what are you going to wear? Oh, yeah, okay, and then I think you should do this. And, yep, that sounds lovely. And, like, loved to take us shopping to... By very like a special sort of one-off thing, like maybe once or twice a year. Mm-hmm. So, oh, and what shoes are you gonna wear? Mm. Um, like because mom's a lover of shoes and bags. Um, so yeah, there was there's a lot. Like there's a, definitely a love of fashion and style, and like always looking for something like a bit different, like yeah. not wearing what everybody else wears. Yeah. Um, and how would they find that, or how have you found that? I mean, it's, it was hard growing up in Brisbane because not it was back in the day where like sports girl was at Temple shopping center was like the best option you had yeah um we would go to markets and things like vintage markets and stuff like that um and find like jewelry like it was always about a jewelry or a accessory to kind of set something off you know yeah yeah but now these days, like I would say I'm more of a I've gone like the complete opposite and I'm more of a sort of uniform type of person, yeah, like where I just invest in like staple like you know this the age the age old story of like investing in staples and like not really deviating too far from like a black and white color palette, as you can see, and um investing in if you're gonna invest in something like making
0: sure it's a blazer or a great pair of pants or a pair of shoes. But just observing you right now, yes, you are in a kind of uniform-esque get up, but you also have these beautiful earrings on that are unique and yeah. your jewellery is obviously the defining and differentiating point of your um, outfit yeah so you're still carrying those kind of totems yeah of and style all my jewellery is like handed down jewellery like my
1: wedding ring is my grand's with emerald wedding ring so um and my signet is my great-grandfather's signet so that they're the most like treasured things that I have is probably jewellery and then my gucci loafers maybe (laughs) (laughs)
0: um so you were talking about traveling before and like you know that sense of being Australian is also to kind of want to look outwards a bit um uh, and you know obviously in your travels and uh, you you do um seem to be connected to the outdoors like you know you're hiking or you're at a beautiful beach but tell me when you feel like you got that travel bug and um, what that's kind of, your sense of exploration, what, what how, that, how that has nourished you? Um, I guess I
1: got that travel bug. I mean, I didn't get on a plane until I was like 15 years old. Mm. So we very much kept to like our backyard when it came to like doing any kind of holidaying. We went to Maloolaba, we went to Noosa, we went to Stradbrook Island. Mm. And we went out, out west Yeah, and that was kind of it. And then I think I first like traveled to Sydney when I was 15 and then I went to Tasmania for a school thing. And then first year out of school, I was like, okay, I'm ready. Mm. So in between like uni semesters, we went to Thailand and we would go to, and we went to London. And um, I think my first trip to London, I was like absolutely gobsmacked. By how old things were how old buildings were and that sense of like history and this like evolution of a society that has been there for so long mm. like Brisbane has no old buildings yeah like the BLK Peterson government made sure of that so is that his name yeah <laughs> um <laughs> yes anyway so that was what struck me, and then going to Paris like was just again just like blew my mind.
0: It was so it was the sense of history, that, the sense
1: of history, and the yeah. like, the fact that people have walked those streets, you know, centuries ago, and they're still the same, the same kind of cobblestone streets. Mm. Um, and then also the people, obviously, like the breadth of cultures and the. The fact that there are just, there's just all of these other people living these amazing different lives, that really struck me as well. Um, So, what did that do for your sense of self? I think it probably made me just more curious and made me want to look outwardly even more. Mm. Um, And it also probably, like, I have that one of those that like disease where you go to a city and then you dress like that city. Yeah. Yeah. And then you come home and you're like, these time oh. fisherman's pants don't
0: don't work here like in LA. Don't These work here. very bright colours that work in Barcelona and not, yeah. not quite here. Yeah.
1: And I have when I lived in LA a couple of years ago for about two years, I was like, the stuff I wore was wild yeah like tight jeans and tight shirts and just and then like then but then going to like this very bohemian like flowy um like patchworky stuff right very different yeah and in London like I was way more formal and I would wear heels every day and then Working in Sydney when I first started working in magazines, like wearing heels every day, yeah, and wearing becoming that sort of magazine. I think I'm probably quite chameleonic in that sense, like can sort of adapt depending on the
0: environment. Yeah, uh, which is a curiosity in itself, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so going back to this reverence for like history, I find that really interesting because obviously it's. Kind of threaded through from mm. the beginning of your life, like obviously there's a connection to where where as a where the lands come from and 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 that kind of connection to history. And obviously you as a younger person you're exploring all of this. Yet one of the things that kind of struck me when I'm preparing for this interview, Anna, is that this idea that you're incredibly forward thinking and that you know you've worked. Um, like you know in contrast to that sense of history you were an online editor in like 2008 for Harper's Bazaar right Mm. so you're working in a digital space in Australia at a point where iPhones are just kind of coming to the fore yeah there's no social media other than probably Facebook at the time yeah um tell me about all of that like tell me about how you came to be in a position where knowing that that is potentially like the future scope of an industry.
1: Yeah, it's a funny, it was a funny trajectory because starting off at Harper's, I started like as PA to the editor. Yeah. Um, and I all I knew was I loved editorial and I loved, I wanted to be in that space and fashion journalism to me was exciting, but also Harper's Bazaar was a little bit more fantastical in its like storytelling and its like identity as a magazine Mm -hmm. a little bit more sort of avant-garde maybe and like creative I would say um than the other magazines that were around at the time so were you there in the edwina no so prior to her so allison so it was probably allison when allison had first started yeah right um and there was like Claudia Navone was the fashion director and Christine Centenera was there and Marina and Vanessa Antonius. So it was like, and Jamie Huckbody who was an amazing editor as well. So it was an amazing like group of creative people. Mm -hmm. Um, And Alison as an editor was very encouraging of just thinking outside of the box constantly and like not going for the norm. And that really influenced me in like the way that I wrote particularly as well, like forgetting about formalised like sentence structures and um, just really tapping into into your imagination and like thinking outside the box a lot more. So when I went away for a year and then Jamie became editor and he offered me the role of online editor, but I'd already been sort of working in that space. And so to me yeah, this online world was, like, you know, like a story that I remember writing about would be, like, this brand's launched an e-commerce website. (laughs) Like, that would be the story of the week. Yeah. Like, someone launching an e-commerce platform, like,
0: hilarious. Yeah. So... But that was groundbreaking at the time. And
1: we were really trying to be, like, style.com. Like, we were trying to, like, post runway shows up when the minute they'd happened. And it was all about, like, still really all about runway... um, Trend reports and st- and you know I um I commissioned Alexander Fury to like do all of our runway reports but he did it like under a ghostwriter name which was quite funny but he, you know so that was exciting because he would like he would file his report from Paris and then we'd post it like two hours later we'd be like oh my god we're so on the cutting edge of the internet yeah <laughs> and-, <laughs> and then we yeah obviously it was just such a different time because my approach to social as well was very much like had my kind of own voice when it came to like tweeting and Facebook and yeah did you have a
0: blog no
1: I didn't have a personal blog right oh actually no I probably did I had a Tumblr did you feel
0: like you were on the edge of a new frontier yeah absolutely like and was it the same experience as feeling like you were traveling you know like yeah for sure and yeah because I mean
1: it was the first time that things felt truly global as well. And that's like sense of globalization was happening because of the access to brands and the access to information and seeing the shows quickly. I remember, you know, for example, when like you were doing Oscars coverage and being able to get onto Getty and get it within an hour. To me, that was wild that you could get an image that quickly mm. and then get it up on the website. Um, the far, yeah. It felt, it definitely felt fast-paced and like we were delivering this, like delivering this, like amazing news that people just wanted to. It makes me laugh, but that people just wanted to read. Um, and we did. We had a great readership. Like mm. we did stuff that was new and interesting all the time, and so that was super exciting to me, and it was super creative,
0: and I just absolutely adored it from yeah. beginning to end. Now, when you're talking about, like, the online stuff, you're kind of, like, almost rolling your eyes yeah, a bit. Yeah, I'm a
1: bit sarcastic about this,
0: I know. <laughs> but what would you, like, if you could go back and tell your younger self something about that, like, what you know now, because obviously it's so much from a tech perspective has changed everything about the way that we do things, about the way that we absorb fashion and style since then. Is there something that you would like to go back to that? kind of young, excited, forward-thinking girl and just give advice to?
1: Um, yeah, I would just say, like, it – till because I was pre- – I think maybe just, like, slow down and, like, take it all in. Yeah. And enjoy it Yeah. because I was, like, always – I took it very seriously. It's quite oh, yes. an earnest online editor, I would say. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would – yeah, I would I would say that about all facets So, Like if I could go back to my younger self in my 20s, I would say enjoy it and stop looking for the next thing mm. and like enjoy the journey as opposed to trying to get to the destination. I was always wanting like what's the next thing, what's the next thing, what's the next thing? Yeah. So, and I was very ambitious, like very young. Like I was online editor at like 25 or something. Mm. So, and to me that's quite young, but it's probably not now because these younger kids coming
0: through are just like amazing. Yeah. And expect... But at that things. time, yeah. you know, we there was more of a you have to do your dues, like yeah. you have to sit in this room oh, for a show. certain amount of time before yeah. you progress. Like it, it
1: oh, was... yeah, like I had to write the contributors column before I wrote any kind of feature piece mm. for like a year. Yeah. And then I started doing album reviews and then I started doing the fashion news pages. So it was like a very slow. But it meant that you just were ready, you yeah. know? Yeah. It meant that you were ready and you felt ready and you felt confident um and you knew what to do and Mm. how to write Mm. um so yeah I would go back and I would say enjoy it and take it all in and don't take it too seriously and just chill out
0: (laughs) um easier said than done yeah
1: absolutely (laughs) and I think when I moved on from Harper's I lost a real sense of identity because to me that was my identity because I was there for eight years in the I started there when I was 22 and I left at like almost 30.
0: Yeah, so very formative years.
1: Very formative. And so moving then to agency side really like shook me to my core.
0: What did you learn from that role from a fashion perspective, like in a style perspective? A style perspective. Definitely investment, investing in quality. Right. So that's something that you picked up on. Absolutely. Early in the piece. Yeah. And what about, you know, like given that you, as you're saying, you you kind of had this Fast-paced um, lifestyle, a, a, an ambitious trajectory. Uh, you worked on the agency side, and for two very big, prominent Australian mm-hmm. fashion PR agencies. Mm-hmm. What did? How did that reflect in your relationship to clothes? Were you were you consuming them in that at that same level of speed at the time? Like, was was there a pace to like wanting to absorb the new trend, wanting to had that fresh look?
1: No. I think the minute I left the magazine world, I didn't feel the need to be across trends as much. Mm -hmm. When you are reading trend, looking at runway shows, then reading a trend report or then even writing a trend report, you can't help but then want to reflect, you know, those specific trends. And during the 2000s, like, it was like that seasonal, like, churn was at its highest point you know like six seasons a year mm. and there was like this apps it was like this endless thirst that people had for consuming fashion yeah and that was when the biggest growth of fast fashion happened yeah. was in that period of time
0: so but you never really bought into that oh no absolutely I would go to
1: Zara like every week yeah right
0: yeah yeah
1: and because I wanted to fit like I wanted to feel like I was a part of it but didn't have the salary to support anything like that yeah um in terms of like the trends that were being churned through so and also people just didn't fast fashion was amazing there was definitely a sense of like at harper's for sure like oh i remember like once someone asked me like the fashion editor asked me where did you buy that and i said oh it's just zara she was like oh babe on a budget so i was like okay maybe i'm the babe on the budget
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but also, I think there was still a reverence for Zara because it wasn't as accessible to us Exactly. Yet. There was a huge reverence. It was, reference. It, was it was so exciting. Yeah. Because we didn't have it here and it meant you t- had traveled to get it and yeah, you know, know yeah. it wasn't online, obviously we couldn't get it delivered. Mm-hmm. So it still felt special because it, there still felt like there was a level of elitism and inaccessibility to 100%. it. A hundred percent. Exactly. It felt very international.
1: Um, so yeah, I think when I moved to agency side, I sort of lost the passion for staying on top of like trends, but I think it also meant like I slowed down and stopped consuming as much, mm-hmm. which I think is important. And then I sort of got more of a like biz sense of the business behind fashion for a sense for the business behind fashion. Yeah. Cause we're working with brands yeah. and consulting with brands. So I think it was really formative in that sense of, like, okay, well, this is actually how fashion does work behind the scenes. Whereas on the magazine side, it's all quite fantastical and beautiful and glamorous and, like, exciting.
0: Mm, especially back then. Yeah, yeah especially I mean, back then. You, you in know, the heyday. Print, print media was still the gods of media, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Um. So... You've obviously been in that fantastical situation going into agencies, you know, there's a reputation for it being quite cutthroat and hardcore um, and high intensity, which obviously you have a, have a penchant for. You don't mind the intensity. But how did you find um, a sense of purpose in what you were doing? Well, I think that was probably when I started to lose
1: a sense of purpose. And when I started to get probably, I don't want to say jaded, but a bit sort of lost, Mm. because I thought the purpose that I am literally doing every day is making, is is to make revenue for a brand, you know. Mm. And I felt while I really enjoyed the insights of like brand side and um, agency side, because I think working for an agency definitely gives you a sense of rigor that you don't get in other um you know workplaces because yeah. you just have to be so tight with everything and on the ball and like you know rigorous with like protocols and things but I think it's that was really when I started to yeah lose my sort of like well, what am I actually doing like now so that's when I sort of after that experience I sort of decided to move to LA and to,
0: interesting move yeah <laughs> very interesting move did you have your role lined up then? No, Okay, so I why L.A.? Like, you, you're kind of going for... Why L.A.? Because <laughs> I wanted to actually be an
1: actor. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I wanted to make it in showbiz. Um, I I had friends who lived there, who'd mm. moved there and yeah. were doing the same thing. And L.A. was, like, becoming quite cool. So this was, what, 2014 maybe? Right. And it was when it was, like, culturally becoming interesting, the restaurant scene and, like... Um, the people were moving from New York to LA because of the sort of lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And because it was so, I didn't, I don't really, I I found like, I didn't want to make this huge like move where it was like a new language or a place where I literally didn't know anyone. LA was a good place because it was like a nice, easy transition because there were so many friends there and the climate was beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I was like, why not? Yeah. So I was like, I'll give it a go. I'm going to give it six months. And if I don't find something, I'm not going to do it. Mm. And luckily I did find something and it was a tech startup, which was super, super interesting. Um, And again, like very, like the startup world and the tech world is back then was like, Uber had just come wow. out and it was all of those big That's it
0: it would have been a super interesting time yeah, to be in it was world, and especially, especially around like on west coast of the US exactly right?
1: like in Palo Alto like we would go there like once a week at least to do all of our like capital raising and pitching mm. um and so I was heavily involved in that so because I was the director of marketing for the the app that we were launching um, so
0: just because that app was quite, I guess it was giving you a, giving you a bit more of a return to a sense of community in some ways. Do you want to just yeah. kind of describe uh, what That's that? That's a really was? good
1: point. I haven't really made that that like connection before. So what the app itself was um, really uh, it was new technology because it basically scan use the iphone to scan your skin tones so that you could make a customized foundation that perfectly suited your skin tone mm. so really because makeup back makeup at that time there was like maybe well you know the the brands that had the biggest range there was maybe 20 different skin tones at most so this was really about in, inclusivity mm-hmm. and like fostering and all and to start something like that you have to foster a community of advocates first so my job was literally like grassroots going out to the getting people to come into the office and try it and test it on them and like find out their stories and then like capture their stories through content
0: um do you think you were leveraging any of your mum's psyche through that process
1: I mean definitely yeah for sure because you yeah you have to be you have to like be quite personable and people really liked my Australian accent and because people and I love the Australian accent, even though there's so many Australians over there. So, but I could talk to any, like I feel like I've always been able to sort of talk to anyone. I could talk to a brick wall, you know, Mm. Um, and be able to appeal to anyone from any, or not appeal to anyone from like
0: be able to have a conversation
1: with anyone. Yeah. Relate to anyone. Yeah. But definitely that would be, Absolutely, from mum's influence. Yeah. Um, Because she's the same. Even though she thinks she's quite shy, she's like amazing the way she can sort of speak to anyone about anything. So how did the app go? So the app was successful in its proof of concept and their whole plan really, the two guys that launched it who were super L.A., they the whole plan for them was to do a proof of concept and then eventually like sell it but they'd really promised me my Facebook billions (laughs) and I did not get them um I was like I'm gonna be rich after we launch this so they sold the app to they sold the app technology to L'Oreal and then L'Oreal I think basically just bought it so that they got them out of the market. So they bought the IP and they haven't actually used it in market for anything commercially. I think there was plans to maybe use it for Bare, bare Minerals, um, but they, as far as I'm aware, they haven't.
0: Such a shame. Which is
1: such a shame because the intent behind it is so amazing.
0: Yeah, and and it has commercial appeal too. Yeah. So it, there's it no. It was just very funky. Reason.
1: It was very hard to use.
0: Yeah, right.
1: And it, you can understand that like, you have to be in certain like lighting for it to work properly. And to to have to rely on the user a hundred percent to get a, a correct reading was the issue, mm. um, but was an amazing experience, and it really again like set me up for. I think, um, a bit more like understanding what or like connecting more to like, well, what do I want to get out of what I'm doing for a living, and who you representing
0: exactly? Yeah. Um, which kind of nicely brings you to Walmart. But mm. uh, just going back to your LA kind of time, it's obviously a place that you're saying was a kind of energetic and, and like a place to be at the time from a cultural perspective. But we also often associate it with such a kind of fickle, superficial um, outlook. And you were also there at a time when like the Kardashians were yes. like full bloom, right? It's Um, so
1: funny because Christine reached out to me literally the day before I moved back from LA to see if I wanted to work on the Kardashians app. Right. And I was like, how ironic is this?
0: (laughs) So how did you, how did that all sit with you? Like living in, in a place that still has those very strong elements to define it?
1: Well, it really affected my sense of, so I've never been skinnier than I was when I lived in LA. Right. Like it definitely... I was very healthy. I was doing yoga. I was hiking, which basically means walking up a mountain. Um, It definitely, yeah, I think weirdly it did affect me in some way. Um, But also I had a really nice like grounded set of friends who were not one bit like that. Mm. Um, And I I didn't really go out a lot. I didn't really see that all that stuff that much because you were just working I was just working yeah and driving in my car across town every day from Silver Lake to Santa Monica which was like an hour and a half drive to and from I lived in my car and then I would work from home and I would hike and I would yeah I kept to myself quite a lot but then I would also see like my Aussie friends and my very small smattering of LA friends mm. um And it was lonely, like it was definitely like one of the loneliest times. Like I wasn't that, I wasn't a super happy person. And I really- What was keeping you
0: together? Like what was keeping you driven, so to speak? not a lot. (laughs) What was keeping me together? Not drinking. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And no, definitely like having my Australian family there, for sure, who was like one of my oldest friends who lived there. So they, seeing them every weekend was amazing. I just then realised, like, what am I doing here? If I'm not happy, I'm gonna go. Mm. So, once they'd sort of launched the app to market, I was like, I'm gonna go back to Sydney. Yeah, and, and was quite happy in that in that in that decision because I felt like, okay, this is the natural end of this experience. Mm.
0: What well, you said, you kind of lost a sense of self a bit while you were there. What was the 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 piece that was the common thread? Like the common thread between. Harpers, the agencies working on a startup in LA? I
1: think, um, what's the common thread? I think it's just like working on something that's new and interesting and like um, that sort of like new to market stuff. Because when I was working in agencies, it would always be, Working brand. on a launch yeah, or working anything. on a new brand or working yeah. on... So it's like the newness of things would always quite appeal to me mm-hmm. in that sense. Um, and I don't know where that comes from. I think it's just like fast-paced environments appeal to me. Well, or did, they used to appeal to me. You did say
0: that your parents were always like quite... Like Forward-focused. Yeah. Yeah, future-focused yeah. Yeah. for sure.
1: Um, but... When I came back to Australia, I was really like had to have a come to Jesus moment and be like, okay, what is going to make you happy? Mm. You know? And, you know, I think like our careers define us so much. And it was like, well, how do I do something that isn't super? I wanted to find a work-life balance, you know, Mm. in the past I'd not really done that work-life balance thing. So I think that was kind of, that was kind of the aim but then i worked at img like that was my job when i came back to sydney and that
0: was not work-life balance exactly not hinted. the things that you were looking for no,
1: in but association anyway. and the the common theme there and like i was like i pulled together the fashion week schedule like that was my job and that was like one of the most stressful jobs in the world because you're trying to appease so many different people yeah there's a lot of stakeholders so, so many stakeholders and it was so stressful and I knew so many people in the industry by that stage. So you'd get like calls from the PRs that you knew being like, can't you just, and Please calls ask. from the designers being like, I'm not, I, I can't pay. No, sorry. You know, yeah. Can't you just figure something out? So it was just like, oh my God, it was all, it was quite awful. Um, that really drove me to be like, okay. And so I met Laura Armstrong, who was, the, who was um, the current kind of head of marketing at Allmark in when I was at my role at IMG Mm. and I had this like the way that she spoke about Walmart, I was like this was I had this lightning you know that moment where you get like a full like body shiver kind of thing and you're like this is meant for me this is where I will be and I just thought to myself so clearly I will work at Walmart.
0: Do you think that's because it was the thing that you knew you were looking for in terms of a sense of purpose? Yes. Or did the sense of history and historical connection resonate with you then? Both things, sorry. Yeah, that's it. Both things. The thing that resonated first of all was the sense
1: of connection and and purpose because I thought that not-for-profit framework to me was the thing that, like, called out to me the most was Mm. that sense of like it's not just for profit making it's for the common good of the Australian wool grower to which I have this very strong connection Mm. and so that was the thing
0: and just explain like I know at the beginning of our interview you were talking about how like your uncle um had wool but can you just give that run through of that very deep history that you have with wool so we are actually our family's actually
1: my mum's side of is is directly um related to the macarthur family and john macarthur and elizabeth macarthur were the first i suppose importers of merino importers and breeders of merino sheep in australia um and so my grandfather's middle name was MacArthur. My brother's middle name is MacArthur. Um, So that side of the family, mum's side of the family are all, like we come from a long line of wool growers, Mm. Um, which I didn't really know like how deep it ran until
0: I, you know, went for the job at Woolmark. Right. Um, Is that, so you just started asking questions of your family and then finding that connection? So my great uncle was like on the first board of directors of Woolmark.
1: So yeah, it's just wild. Yeah, the familial kind
0: of connections that we have to this very iconic Australian brand. Just, just so much inherently running through you though. Without like, that's what blows my mind is that it's not even necessarily like this conscious thing. No, it's that it was in front of you and you just knew that this was a calling. Yeah, like energetically knew it that this was like my calling
1: kind Mm. of thing. It's very odd. Yeah, you can't really put it into words. And I've never really had that feeling before except like maybe when I met my husband. And That's really cute. Yeah, like when else? I feel like that's kind of it. Yeah. So it's a very like weird feeling of like I rang my mum straight away after I met Laura and I was like, I'm going to work at Woolmark. I've figured it out. This is what I'm going to do. This time next year I'm going to be there.
0: And I stalked. Laura. Well, because you knew how to. You, you worked for IMG and agencies. Yeah. You know how to pick, pick up a phone and, and
1: get a job. Yeah, done. I was <laughs> like, I will work there, whether, come high, like hella high water. So it took me about eight months, I think, to make it happen. They created a role that mm. didn't even exist. So that was like quite um, amazing as well. But she needed, like they needed to grow the team. They had like two people in their marketing team back then. So it was that I came in at a very opportune kind of moment.
0: Obviously, you're promoting wool as a natural fibre that can, um, you know, obviously be have durability, uh, not, not pollute the world. It can be decomposed. It can also be farmed in a way that is regenerative.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What are the pieces of information that, you know, you would like to um, kind of promote or tell broadly from a sustainable sustainability perspective?
1: I think, well, one of the main things is that people probably, especially Australians, probably don't realise how important Woolmark and AWI is to like Australia's not only sense of identity, but like how amazing Wool is as one of our key exports. It's like our cleanest, greenest export, you know, mm. and um I don't think many people kind of realize that or are as proud of it as they probably should be. So I think what they also don't realize is how we work across like all tiers of the fashion and textile supply chain. So whether that's, you know, obviously it starts at the wool growing um, stage, but it goes all the way up to manufacturers, to designers, to brands, to retailers, to consumers. So, you know, whether it is like at the wool grower stage, we work to you know, empower farmers to have the right like tools and pathways to, whether it's to like improve their like land management practices. Um, We invest in like fly strike initiatives, which is to minimize mulesing. Like they, the the things that they're working on from an on-farm perspective are truly amazing. And it's all based in like science and veterinary kind of areas, stuff that's like completely generally over my head (laughs) through to like the supply chain so we work like with manufacturers to like improve their materials strategies so that you know they're creating something that is more durable able to last longer and then is able to be recycled we're working with on like this thing called the there's a thing that's called the extended producer responsibility scheme which is going to come into play into Europe pretty soon which basically means that the brands are going to be taxed quite heavily if they don't have an end of life process in place, whether that is a recycling program or a recycling like process, they will be taxed heavily if they are just using like virgin synthetics, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're working on a big piece of research to show the economical benefits of working with virgin wool, but also recycled wool, and to also improve wool's recycling processes globally, and that's a huge task because mm. um, that's like a, a supply chain within itself. Um, we and then we then work with like brands and retailers, obviously, on their material strategies, and then we then work to we work to talk directly to consumers to improve their awareness and education about fibre and what fiber, what it means, like what fiber consumption actually means. Because Mm. basically we've done a lot of research that shows that fiber consideration doesn't feature in the purchase journey of the everyday consumer at all. And that's scary. And people don't know, the majority of people don't know that synthetics come from fossil fuels, Mm. which is also quite scary. So, we're really working to like move the needle on consumer awareness and behavior Mm. like
0: that's a it's, it's such a huge task in itself well and that brings us to the latest bit of content that you've created that's gone viral which is this um incredibly impactful uh and visually stimulating video of you know a beautiful people kind of emerging out of a pool of oil mm. um, and then kind of de-layering from the oil into their their beautiful, gorgeous-looking woolen clothes. Um, did you create that? Is that out of your brain space? No, I wish it was my <laughs> brain that created
1: that. We worked really, our team worked really closely on that particular campaign over the past. Like, it's probably been a year, almost two years, no, year and a half in the making. And... Um, Our team worked really closely with an agency in the UK who had worked on a lot of really strong Greenpeace um, content and ad campaigns. So we knew we wanted to work with them. We knew we had to put a stake in the ground when it came to talking about the negative effects of synthetics. And sort of historically speaking, we're not that kind of brand. Mm. So it was a big risk and the board was very scared. (laughs) Many people in the, within the brand were scared. Um, but it's been an amazingly successful piece of, of work because, um, we can see that people who have viewed that piece of content, whether it be once, whether it be many, many times, they are taking away that, that new sense of, that new perception, that, synthetics are made from fossil fuels it's time to choose natural fibers if you're going to shop at all, shop for natural fibers.
0: In terms of it being, Walmart being an Australian icon if you like, um, what role do you think it plays in terms of a sustainable or ethical sense of representation um, and Australian identity?
1: Depending on what region it is that we're doing something, activity, whether it's with the supply chain or direct to consumers, we have to kind of tailor what the message is, but it's, we always try and make sure that that Australian provenance story is told. And even more so at the moment, because we're looking at bringing in a completely new traceability program mm-hmm. where that Woolmark symbol will mean a lot more than just quality. It will mean that it came from Australia and that you can be guaranteed it came from an
0: Australian merino farm what do you think is important for Woolmark in terms of the way that Australian identity is presented in that framework rather than just um, from the perspective of the farmers and how they relate to the wool?
1: In terms of like an identity of the Woolmark brand, I think that needs work Mm. and it needs work to be connected back through to Australia and like that's the piece of work we're actually doing right now is like how are we Who are we as a brand now? You know, who is Woolmark as a brand? It is iconically recognizable, but is it iconically Australian and iconically recognized as an Australian brand overseas? Probably not. Mm. We just did a piece of work here, which was very much about connecting Australians back to the fact that Woolmark and Australian Merino Wool is Australia's proud, one of Australia's most, uh, you know, amazing and Um, you know proudest exports where we sort of showcased um, it was about like drawing this line of this like Australian very like typical Australian wool grower and having him in all of these different um, examples of where wool is being used in a very innovative way whether it's through like fire protection or um, in outdoor like performance where or just in the home. So we kind of had this like Austral- very Australian um, voiceover and Australian looking man kind of present in all of those different scenes to really draw that like connection
0: back to the fact that this is a very Australian export. So, And also I think what's interesting about that is that this material has a very human element mm-hmm. to it from its inception, it's not It's not just a fabric. And I think that's part of the education piece, right, Mm. is that understanding all the hands and the roles that they play in getting something that grows off the land into our pocket, so to speak. Absolutely.
1: And that's That's why supply chain traceability and transparency is gonna be such a huge priority for us because showing that human face behind all these different stages of the supply chain is extremely important. We, you know, we just did a big piece of research about Gen Z consumers because obviously they're primed to be like the the engine of consumer spending like in the next few years. So we're trying to understand, well, what's their connection to Merino wool or what's the opportunity for Merino wool? And it's all about bringing that human connection. That's what they want to see. They don't want to see a polished corporate identity. They want to see a human face. Yeah and a, pro, a story yeah. and a pro, they want to see the processes. They want to see the processes in all of their like raw, nitty gritty, like glory, mm. um,
0: which I think is amazing that that's what they're interested in as a, in content. Do you know what I, I'm finding interesting about your story is that, um, you know, you've come to a place where uh, the ideals of your childhood of telling stories through a platform um and even as as um you know like even in, in not in an acting sense but in a like okay we're, we're creating a video we're we're creating this this story uh, for you to, to kind of interact with but it's a it's a forward-looking space in that mm. it's content through um you know like the most developed means however it um it draws from history and it's like you've you have found the place that you are truly happy in. Once you've stopped just being purely purely forward thinking, and you've brought all that historical element into the way that we move forward. Mm. So, do you do you hold a, a different reverence for history now?
1: I think so, definitely. As I get older, for sure, um, there's more of a respect level for it. You know. And I think in this, like, new – because it is a trend, this new trend of bringing things back to the source and having a reverence for and respect for the source being nature and, like, the source of the – like, going back to the beginning of whatever it is, is, like, having a sort of – like that is the new kind of trend in content right and I think yeah it really does strike a chord with me for sure I don't know why though like I'm so have such a reverence for it I guess it is because of growing up here and not seeing it every day like this like very deep sense of history
0: within like being coming from Brisbane Mm -hmm. I think it's like but then having elements of that that obviously are very kind of striking you know if we think about the start of this interview yeah. it's going to those certain parts of the farm for sure with the yeah. indigenous etchings you know that that you, you kind of that contrast of yeah having access to this ancient land um, in its pure form and but then your everyday life not having any of that
1: yeah exactly So yeah, it really makes sense that I'm
0: very into this sort of storytelling for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, But as you're saying, is that a way? Is that the new thing there though? Like being in that digital space—is this absolutely? You think that's a trend?
1: Oh my god, absolutely! Like it's—it's almost becoming a bit of a fad,
0: and Mm. I'd hate that idea that like the depth and the the kind of the meaning behind something is a fad. Yeah. Like getting to the raw nitty gritty of something and
1: not being super polished Mm. in your presentation and like actually like lifting the veil behind the process, like how something came to be made. Yeah. And the like links back to nature, if there are any like that. I'd say that because people are just trying to chase this Gen Z audience Mm. and it's become this big commercial I suppose objective for many different brands you can sort of see I think it's all a positive thing though because I think it's a it's a great educational yeah it's educational and it's about at the end of the day transparency and traceability and that's like the key to being truly sustainable is understanding the full story of how something came to be made Mm -hmm. um so I think, I think it's all good things, but yeah, I do think it's a bit. It can look a bit fatty. Do you worry that it's going to cycle back to something more fickle? I mean, yeah, I do. I'm like, well, where, where is this going to lead? I always think about that. Like, when will this bubble burst? Or when will the what will the next big thing be? But I, I do think that this slowing down of consumption in general is only a good thing. Mm. So, like, hopefully, it remains the same. I don't think we will ever go back to that overconsumption, like I hope
0: not, I hope we've learned our lessons. So in terms of your personal lessons of style what what's Walmart done for you in terms of your wardrobe and how you relate to it? It's made me literally stop shopping full stop.
1: I think I haven't shopped in like since maybe I bought my wedding dress, that was the first time I probably shopped in I don't even know how long Um, yeah, it's made me stop consuming. It's made me consider everything about where something comes from, especially when it comes to, um, literally everything, everything I buy, I think about what it's made of and where it's come from and what that supply chain might look like. Um, it's made me hate fast fashion and have a real disdain for it. Um, quite a passionately, quite a passionate disdain for it. Um, you've, got, you've gone full circle. I've gone full <laughs> circle for sure. Um, you can't not be so infiltrated in this way though. Yeah. Because if once you work at Woolmark, you become a real like
0: wool advocate, a real wool head. But I, I think that even just yeah. like me doing this season of the podcast, I can't look at a synthetic fabric now. No. Without, without feeling a, like quite, quite a visceral disregard for it now because I'm like if I if I could just educate people on a base level from a stylist perspective it's like that's not going to feel good you're going to sweat in it it doesn't feel nice on your skin you'll choose to stop wearing that polyester thing faster because you don't like how you feel in it Mm -hmm. um and then there's all these other layers, you know, but I think exactly. even at the very base layer, like I love wearing cotton mm-hmm. and I, I always have. And I now realize it's because I can breathe, like I don't feel clammy yes. and, you know. You know. The, t- the only way, pe- so in the research we did, the
1: only way people connect to fiber at all is through feel. Yeah. And that's why in that piece of content, we did that very visceral oil, swimming in oil sort of scene because that was the way people were really connecting to fiber at all mm. was through feel mm. against the skin. Yeah. So we wanted there to be this really like icky feeling and then the sense of relief mm. when it came to the wool scene. And it's all very, you know, conceptual and, but you kind of need to do that in order to like get across this message in a very quick amount of time. Yeah. Um, well and you
0: and you did that really really well um, in terms of then like your personal style you said you've kind of gone to a bit of a uniform is that all a, a subject of making choices that are more educated that it is streamlining your wardrobe not mm-hmm. buying as much that if you've just got really good well-formed natural fibered clothes that you, can integrate your style or your sense of identity in other ways like your jewellery? Is that all part of this education process or is there something else going on?
1: And it's also getting older and being more confident in your like sense of style Mm. and what your sense of style is and being okay with like, this is it. Yeah. And I don't need to follow trends and I don't need to know even what the trends are, to be quite honest.
0: So what, what, if you could, tell the story of your like clothes right now what like what were the words you'd use to describe i would say comfortable but like
1: i'm quite drawn to just like simple lines and simple like color palettes and nothing over complicated and i just think that's get
0: like do you think that's symptomatic of a love of australian design for sure
1: Absolutely. Because most of my clothes, if I buy them any any new, it's all Albus Lumen or Wardrobe NYC, which is this, or um,
0: I love Australian. Like I adore Australian brands. It's all connected to your um, your little crew, your formative little crew at Harper's. Yeah, it
1: is actually, <laughs> which is wild. Isn't that
0: funny? It is funny. <laughs> so for this forward-looking girl, what what is – um, on the agenda, look, looking forward, we, we obviously previously to starting the interview, we did talk about how you just got married and, mm-hmm. you, you know, I loved your wedding outfit. And for me, it's because it engendered like a 60s um, kind of London moment. It, it, to me, I, I just got images of Paul McCartney and um, Linda McCartney, you know, yeah. at the registry on the wedding day. That's exactly what we were trying to go for, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah yeah but but so that's obviously a big life move but what what are you looking forward to moving forward I'm really looking forward to where Woolmark is
1: heading because there's a lot of change afoot um we are growing which is amazing as a team but also in the scope of like the projects that we're undertaking um and this particular project which is really about like changing this consumer mindset to me is quite exciting mm-hmm. um there's also a lot of change afoot with the International Walmart Prize, which is a huge program that um, we invest in. And it's a great program because it's all about nurturing like new design talent. And they're such passionate designers and such amazing creatives. And you really get a sense, a global sense of where fashion design is kind of going when you work on the Australian, on the IWBP program. And so what does that look like for you? It looks like... Again, like these new designers, like sustainability is in everything they do, there is no question of it. Mm. And they are so aware of what is happening in their own supply chains, and they're so aware of wanting to slow down and not produce and not overproduce. And they don't care about the seasonal turnover. Mm. And I think that that's just such an interesting and amazing challenge that they're throwing down to these, like bigger brands, they're just completely disregarding that sort of like seasonal churn. Mm. Um, They wanna create for exactly what their customer needs and no more. Mm. Um, And for their community. And for their community. And also like, there's just so, you just think, there's just such, they've just, there's such endless like creativity in the way that they, and to them creativity is about like innovating in textiles it's not necessarily about innovating in like design.
0: Yeah, it's but, but about technology. But also in doing that, it does innovate design. Yeah, right? absolutely. Of course, like it's, it's all hand new in hand. Shapes yeah. and in in yeah di- different ways of forming an object, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. Like Saul Nash, who's the winner of this year's Walmart Prize, you know, created I think three different new textiles for knitwear,
0: mm.
1: and it's. Um, like amazing, and it was all about breathability and um, this new kind of jacquard that he knit that he created. It was it's it's truly mind blowing, and he's like twenty something.
0: Yeah. So. And it that's looks exciting. new. Yeah, and it you looks know, like new it and looks interesting. fresh and new yeah. and innovative. It's not just about the process yeah. that people can't relate to. Uh-huh. Exactly. Yeah.
1: So I think like the future is in good hands, where it's exciting because. Mm. You think they're, they're like streets ahead of where you think they might be, you mm. know? Mm.
0: So yeah. And last question to you. When you're in your like 70s, 80s, which grandmother are you going to be? Where, like how do you think you'll be dressing? <laughs> are you going to be Bohemian or are you going to be? I'd like <laughs> to
1: say I would be Bohemian, but I think I'm going to be the other granny. Yes. <laughs> I think I'm going to revert back to the rules of like, these like weird old school rules of like not wearing black until you're 10 years old or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I hope I'm not though. <laughs> but I still think that that, yeah, cause that's what my mum is turning into. She's turning into her mother. I'll no doubt turn into my mum. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, in, in the best possible ways, it sounds like you already have. Yeah. Um, all right, well, thank you so much, Anna, for uh, joining you. me today and sharing your style story. Anna's attraction to forward-thinking freedoms and fast-paced formats may have fed into her career and factored into her style. However, the meaning of her future has been found in the stories of her past. Whether it's working with wool, committing to community, or mirroring her mother's sense of mentorship, Anna has settled into a style that simply honours her history. And despite still being fascinated with a forward and fashionable view of the future, she continues to take style cues from the past. Combining the classic and conservative with a bohemian base, Anna pays tribute to her maternal legacies and ensures her style remains anything but common.